Uh, this morning, uh, we have a, I don't want to say a guest preacher, it's not really the right phrase for it. Most of you guys, many of you know uh, Josh Staley, who is one of the pastors at Soma. Primarily, his ministry is at Soma Midtown, but he'll be preaching this morning. Uh, Josh, aside from just generally being one of my very good friends, is also probably one of the most gifted uh, preachers that I know. Uh, He is someone whose love for God's word, for his internalization of it, the way in which he knows scripture, not just by study, but by heart, the way that uh, God's word permeates him and his life and his family uh, is a constant encouragement and blessing to our whole community. So uh, I hope that uh, you will all be as encouraged as I know I'm going to be from listening to Josh this morning. Uh, The text that we're going to be reading will be in uh, Exodus 24, verses 1 through 11. That's on page 37 in your blue Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please take one of these. Uh, That's our gift to you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word uh, in their home. So if you don't have one, please grab it. Page 37, Exodus 24, 1 through 11. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people should not come up with him. Moses came and told all the people the words of the Lord and all the rules, and the people answered with one voice, All the words the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Adab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. All right. Hey, good morning, Soma Northwest. I'm excited to, to be here today with you um, and just thankful for the time of worship and the reminders that we've already had of, of God's faithfulness and uh, excited to look into the book of Exodus and be reminded again of God's faithfulness. Also very thankful for this uh, stool today. Uh, I, uh, I was in the gym this week. Um, my, uh, my body was telling me I was 40. Uh, my ego was telling me I was 20. That's a terrible combination when you're in the gym. And uh, my body age uh, won out. So anyway, if you see me walking around like I need a V8, uh, that's what's going on. So um, anyway, so excited, so excited to, to be with you guys today. Uh, and yeah, to be back in the book of Exodus. This is an amazing passage. It's also kind of a strange passage, I think, for many of us. Uh, when we look at this and we're like, what in the world is going on here? But this is actually one of those passages in the scripture that reverberates all throughout the scripture. Um, it is literally and metaphorically a mountaintop moment in the history uh, of God's people. 
Because this is what God's doing in the book of Exodus and really what he is doing all throughout the scriptures is that God is building a kingdom. God is building a kingdom for himself. He is rescuing his people from Pharaoh. He has rescued them from injustice and oppression and slavery in Egypt. And he has brought them out. He has brought them into the wilderness. He has brought them through the Red Sea. He brings them through the desert to this place called Mount Sinai. And he says, the reason I am doing all of this is to make you my kingdom. He has rescued them from the kingdom of Pharaoh, brought them into the kingdom of God. He has liberated them from injustice, brought them to Mount Sinai to show them what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, to show them what it means to live as people of justice and love and human flourishing in the midst of an unjust and broken world. At the very beginning, when he brings them to, uh, to, to Mount Sinai, this is what he says, Exodus 19, verse 3. I think we've got it uh, for the screens in back of you. Exodus 19, the Lord called to him, called to Moses out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And here's a key phrase, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What God is saying is he is saying, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. I am going to make you my representatives on the earth. You will show the world what I am like. That's what a priest does. A priest represents God to the people. And a priest represents the people to God. And and he says, you're going to show the world what I am like. And in the process, you're going to show the world what the truly human life looks like. Because if you go all the way back to Genesis 1, God created human beings in his image. He created human beings to know him and to reflect him and to represent him. And so when God says, people of Israel, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests, he is saying, you are going to show the world what I am like. And in the process, you're going to show the world what it means to be fully human. You're going to show the world what it means to be my image bearers. So God brings his people through the Red Sea. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He says, Exodus 19, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. Exodus 20, he gives them the Ten Commandments or as the Hebrew scriptures call them, the ten words. And if you pay attention, what God is doing in the Ten Commandments or the ten words is he is not trying to oppress his people. He has brought them out of slavery. He is bringing them into freedom. And he is saying, this is what it looks like to live as fully human beings. This is what it looks like to live as free men and women. God is discipling his people, teaching his people what it looks like to be free. So he gives them these 10 words in Exodus 20. Exodus 21 through 23, he gets really specific. And there's all this stuff in there that we're like, what do we do do with this? And what he is doing is he is taking these principles in the 10 words and he is applying them to a, a group of nomads wandering around the desert in the Middle Bronze Age. And then you get to Exodus chapter 24. And this is one of the high points of the scriptures because as, as Andrea alluded to earlier, this is like the covenant ceremony. This is like the marriage ceremony. This is the marriage ceremony between God and his people. This is where they commit to each other, literally, till death do us part. Last weekend, I uh, officiated a wedding for two of our our members from Soma Midtown. And and what they did last Saturday is remarkably similar to what you see here in, in Exodus 24. God enters into a covenant with his people. I mean, you see, they take vows, 
They commit to each other. They have a reception after. They eat, they drink, they celebrate. They seal the vows. As Andrea said, they seal the vows with a symbol. Thankfully, at this wedding last weekend, they didn't use ox blood. Uh, We used rings, which I always think is a tasteful decision. Um, So better than the ox blood. I haven't had anyone request that for a wedding yet, thankfully. But but here's, here's what's going on here. God is inviting his people to be his special treasured people. He says, all the earth is mine. He says, I could have anyone in the world. And God chooses them. And he brings them into a covenant of love with himself. So that's what we're going to focus in Exodus 24 today. And yet, this is such a pivotal moment, such a huge moment in the history of what God does in the world that we're also going to set it in the context of what comes before and comes after. Here's what you need to know. Here's what God is doing in the world. Genesis to Revelation. What God is doing is God is establishing his kingdom. And then God is reestablishing his kingdom. A kingdom that has been broken by the effects of our sin and our rebellion against him. And what you see all throughout the Bible, this is key to how God establishes his kingdom. God always establishes his kingdom through his covenant. He establishes his kingdom through his covenant. So let me unpack that. What's a covenant? A covenant is a sacred relationship in which God gives himself to his people. And God's people, in return, give themselves to him. It is not merely a contract. It is not merely something that is transactional. God doesn't establish his kingdom through tyranny. He doesn't establish his kingdom through oppression. God is not some despot up there who who through oppression and force and subjugation brings his kingdom. He establishes his kingdom by giving himself to his people and welcoming us into a love relationship with himself and, and calling us to give ourselves to him. And that's how you've got to learn to read the commandments and the laws in the scripture. Because as we're going through the book of Exodus, as you read both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there are commandments, there are laws, there there are things that God calls us to all over the scriptures. And the way that we have to understand those things is that it is part of a relationship. It is part of a covenant relationship with God. The Hebrew word uh, that our English translations translate as law is the Hebrew word Torah. And if you study the word Torah, if you study the way that it functions in the Bible, it's not law the way that we typically think about it. Because in the Western world, the way that we typically think about law is we think about law as some cold or distant or transactional thing. At best, it's something that keeps us from killing each other. At worst, it's something tyrannical and oppressive. That is not what Torah is. The better translation for the Torah is covenant instruction. God gives us his covenant instruction. In other words, this is how you live in a covenant relationship with God. God says, I love you. I am committed to you. I am giving myself to you. And Torah shows us how we give ourselves to God in response. It shows us how we, as the deeply loved covenant people of God, live in a relationship with him. And we've got to be honest, when, when we look at the world, when we look at the world today, when we look at the history of the world, that's not often how religious laws operate, is it? I mean, even in our own country, we have seen over and over and over again how people have twisted God's laws to oppress and enslave. I was talking to a friend from another country um, 
uh, around the world this past week, and, and she has experienced these same things or similar type things, how the, lo- how the laws supposedly of God are used to oppress and are used to keep people down. Because that's what the human heart does. We take things that God designed for good and we twist them to hurt other people. We take something that God designed for freedom and we use it to enslave other people. We use it to enslave ourselves in the process. And that is why it's so vital when we come to the scriptures that we understand the heart behind God's law, that we understand the heart behind his Torah. The reason is not to oppress. The point of the Torah is to show us what it looks like to step into the freedom of living like God's people in the presence of God in the kingdom of God. What it looks like to be liberated from the kingdom of Pharaoh and to step into the kingdom of God. What it looks like to be raised out of the kingdom of death and to live in the kingdom of life. What it looks like, he says, to be the people of God, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Moses, he speaks all these words. We're still catching up to Exodus 24 here. Well, I promise we'll get there. Moses speaks all these words. He receives all these words from the Lord, and then he writes them down, Exodus 24 says, in something called the book of the covenant. And what I want to do today is I want to look at this covenant ceremony, and and I think there there are three primary things we're going to see today that the book of the covenant teaches us about life in God's kingdom. And I know these were written to a group of nomads 3,500 years ago and half a world away, but they are still eminently applicable to those of us who are trying to live out the way of Jesus, who are trying to live as citizens of God's kingdom in 21st century Indianapolis. So three things we're going to see. One, life in God's kingdom is life lived under the rule of God. Two, life in God's kingdom is life lived in the presence of God. Three, life in God's kingdom is life lived by the mercy of God. It's life lived under the rule of God. It's life lived in the presence of God. It is life lived under the mercy of God. First, life in God's kingdom is life lived under the rule of God. Verse 3, Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Do you hear that repetition? All, 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 all. Moses hears all the words and he speaks all the words and he writes down all the words and all the people say, we will do all the words that the Lord has spoken. He doesn't pick and choose. Moses doesn't censor God's words. He tells the people all that God has said. Because here's the thing, if God is God, And if we are his people, then we don't get to pick and choose what we'll follow and what we won't. And yet, this is so often what we find ourselves doing. We take the stuff we like, and we edit out the stuff that we don't like. Some of us love the stuff God says about caring for the poor and and the vulnerable and the refugee, and, and, and and that's true biblical stuff. But then we flat out ignore what God says about sexuality. Some of us are the opposite. Some of us are like, God, you can tell me what to do with my sexuality. You can tell me what to do with my body, but don't you dare touch my money. Don't you dare tell me what what to do when it comes to loving people who are different from me. We edit God's words. We pick and choose. We tone God down, and we try to fit him into our categories. But here's the thing. If, If you censor God, if you edit God to make God play by your rules, then God's no longer God. At that point, you're God. At that point, you are acting as the authority. But, but if there's a God, and if you're not him, 
and just like, spoiler alert, you're not him. So if there's a God and you're not him, then isn't it reasonable to expect that sometimes he's going to say some things that rub us the wrong way? Isn't it reasonable to think that sometimes he is going to say some things that go against the grain of our way of thinking? If God is God, if he's the king of the universe and we're citizens of his kingdom, then that means that I, as a citizen of his kingdom, submit or ought to submit to his word in every aspect of life. Now, this is where you got to think carefully, especially when it comes to, to things like the Old Testament here, right? Because that doesn't mean that we as followers of Jesus follow all of the laws, all the little commandments that are in the Hebrew Scriptures. There are all kinds of laws that followers of Jesus don't follow today, right? The Old Testament says you can't eat pork. But listen, if we go out to lunch after this, and if there is an option for me to add bacon to something, I am taking that option. Like, I don't have to think about it. I don't care. what It can be ice cream. I don't care. We are throwing some bacon on top of that thing. So here's the question. Am I editing God? Am I picking and choosing the rules that I want to follow or the rules that I don't? Because here's the thing. If I believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, that's not a peripheral issue. That's an important thing. And that's where we've got to remember what the point of these laws is. Remember, God is showing us what it means to live. He is showing his people what it means to live in a covenant relationship with himself. And he is speaking here to a particular people in a particular time in a particular place. And so there are some things that he is going to say that are going to be specific to that people in that time and in that place. But there are some things that will transcend that. Because remember what God's doing with his people. He's making them a kingdom of priests. He is making them a reflection of who he is. He is giving them laws so that they can show the world what he is like. And because God doesn't change, some of these laws do reflect something of the eternal character of God. And so it's a tough issue. we gotta, we got to think carefully about this. And it's so important that we don't get overly simplistic. Because we tend to fall into one of two ditches. Some people fall into the ditch where they just kind of say, okay, look, God said it. We need to follow it no matter what. So that means, like, you can only wear certain kinds of fabric because the Old Testament laws say you can't wear fabric with two different kinds of fabric uh, knit together. Or you can only eat certain kinds of food. And that is one ditch that people can fall into. I'll be honest, probably most of us in, the, in this room aren't in danger of falling into that ditch. But I do think that many of us are in danger of falling into the other ditch where we simply ignore God's law. You say things like this, well, that was a product of their time and their culture, and now we know better. We, we don't keep the food laws, so why does it matter what, what we, if we follow what God says about caring for the poor? Why does it matter if we follow what God says about sexuality? And those are important questions, and you've got to remember, what's the point of these laws in the first place? Jewish scholars count, uh, they're very specific about this, 613 commandments in the Hebrew Scriptures. And every one of these commandments basically falls into one of two categories. There's, there's two primary uh, purposes for these commandments. Some of these commandments are cultural identity markers. They set the people of Israel apart from their, their pagan neighbors. So you've got laws about what kind of food you can eat, laws about what kind of fabric you can wear. These are cultural identity markers. They are not moral issues. They are not ethical issues. They're ethnic and cultural identity markers that set the people of Israel apart from their neighbors. So that is the purpose of some of these laws. But there are some laws that if you pay attention to the scriptures, they function differently. 
Because when you read these laws, they are reiterated all over the Bible. They reflect something that is embedded in the universe about the way that God made it and about the way that God created human beings to function that show us something about who God is. And so the question you've got to come to as a Christian and you read this is, what laws are still binding? Is oppressing the poor the moral equivalent of eating shellfish? And that was, that was one of the questions. Interestingly, this is one of the questions that the early church first had to answer. You read the book of Acts. You read the letters of Paul. This is the primary theological question that they are dealing with. Sometimes I'll, I'll have conversations with people, and they act like they're the first person to ever come up with this idea. They're like, man, what about the Old Testament laws? Like, Christians are such hypocrites. Like, you don't follow the laws. No one's talking about that. And I'm like, bro, like, the church has literally been talking about this for almost 2,000 years. Like, this was the whole point of the first council of the church in Acts 15. This is the whole point of many of the debates that Paul is dealing with in his letter. So, so first and foremost, if you've got questions about this, read those guys first. Uh, but, but since we don't have time to read the whole New Testament today, I'm going to try to boil it down uh, for you this morning. There are some things that Jesus says are no longer binding for his followers today. Like there are some Old Testament laws that if you read Jesus and if you read the New Testament, he says that doesn't apply necessarily in the same way in this day and time. Specific laws for a specific people in a specific time, in a specific place that serve their specific purpose. So, so that you know I'm not making this up, let me give you an example. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. I think we've got that, that for the screens. Acts chapter 10. This is actually the moment where the early church starts asking this question. Because up until this point, Christianity has been a movement within Judaism. But now, God is about to do something radically new. Christianity is about to go global. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter, this is the apostle Peter, went up on the house, housetop about the sixth hour to, to pray. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. So it's like Peter's so hungry, he's hallucinating here. Uh, and he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So these are animals that the Old Testament would have prohibited him as a good, faithful Jewish man from eating. And there came a voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. This is interesting. Peter hears this voice, and he's like, I recognize that voice. That's the voice of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus is telling me, rise and kill these things. But it's so ingrained in Peter that he's not supposed to even touch these things that, that he says, no, Jesus, I'm not going to do that. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And then Peter snaps out of it, and immediately there is a knock at the door, and these Romans ask Peter to come and to tell them about Jesus. There's something important happening here. God is about to send Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He is expanding his kingdom beyond the borders of Israel. He is building a kingdom of Jews and Gentiles from every tribe and tongue and nation. He is doing something new in the world. And because he's doing something new, those old laws that separated Jews from Gentiles don't apply anymore. Jesus has broken down the dividing wall. And so there's this clear example 
of, of, of at times some things that Jesus says, okay, that doesn't apply anymore. And yet, on the other hand, you read the teachings of Jesus, and you read the teachings of the apostles, and there are other laws that not only do they not do away with those laws, they actually strengthen them. They actually deepen them. They make them more forceful. It, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, the law said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't lust. The law said, don't murder. I say, forgive. The law said, love your neighbor. I say, love your enemies. Like, Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He is not doing away with the moral law of God. He is deepening the moral law of God. He is intensifying it. As one Jewish scholar put it, Jesus took the law of love in the Torah and he radicalized it. Jesus says it is not enough to keep the law in your outward actions. You got to keep God's commandments from the heart. And so there are some laws, there are some commandments that the followers of Jesus are still called to keep. There are others that they're not still called to keep. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but we're not going to go through all 613 commandments in the Torah today. But, but I want you to have those categories so that you can search the rest of the scriptures. And if you've got questions about that, reach out to one of your pastors and, uh, or one of your leaders here and have those discussions with them. But here's the point you've got to see. Whether it's under the Old Covenant or the New Covenant, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, whether it's 3,500 years ago in, in, the, in, the, in a desert in the Middle East, or whether it's here in 21st century Indianapolis, God's kingdom is, is a kingdom where life is lived under the rule of God. When God speaks, we as his people hear and we trust and we obey. And here's why. All of life is lived under the rule of God because of the second thing we see, because all of life is lived in the presence of God. Life in God's kingdom is a life that is lived in the presence of God. This is one of the things you see all throughout the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. God dwells in the midst of his people. Book of Exodus, he leads them as a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. Exodus chapter 25, he's about to tell them about the tabernacle. He's about to tell them about this tent where God will meet with his people. You read the book of Deuteronomy, there, there are literally instructions for what to do after you go to the bathroom. And the reason that God gives all these instructions about all of life, Deuteronomy 23 says, is because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. As the people of God, we live all of our lives, as the reformers said, quorum Deo, before the face of God, in the presence of God. Now, do you realize that? Do I realize that? Do I think about that on a daily basis? Every moment of your life, every word, Every action, every thought, every fear, every intention, every motivation, every aspiration, it is all lived before the face of God. God wants to dwell with his people. That's why he redeems them. That's why he brings them out of slavery. That's why he's bringing them into a covenant with himself. And yet there's a tension here in the text because the people can't come all the way into the presence of God. Go all the way back to verse 1, chapter 24, verse 1. Then he, God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship me. This is key. Worship me from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. 
God says, okay, come up here, but, but don't get too close. Stay back. And only Moses can come into the presence of God because God's a holy God and we are sinful people and someone needs to mediate between God and his people. Someone needs to make peace between God and his people. And so there's this tension here. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. I will give myself to you and you will give yourself to me. But, but don't get too close. If you do, you'll die. Like that's what we saw back in Exodus 20. There's like this light show and there's thunder and lightning and fire. It's one of the fascinating things you get when you come to the Bible. I was talking to Tracy about this, my wife Tracy, last week, and I was just blown away by this again, how the God of the Bible shatters our categories. Because God is both transcendent and imminent. He is high and holy and lofty and exalted, but he is also a God who comes near to his people and brings his people near to him. And if you look at most religions, most religions have a God who is either one or the other. He is either near or he's far. He's either holy or he's with us. But the God of the Bible breaks those categories. The God of the Bible shatters those paradigms. God is teaching us something here. He is teaching us, I am high and holy and lofty and unapproachable, and yet I am going to make a way for you to come into my presence. So how's he going to do that? It's only possible because of the third thing we'll see. So life in God's kingdom lived under the rule of God. Life in God's kingdom lived in the presence of God. It's only possible because of the third thing you see in this text. Life in God's kingdom is life lived by the mercy of God. By the mercy of God. Verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Then... Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. That is a breathtaking statement. They beheld God. And they ate and drank. Like you can almost hear the shock in the, in the author's voice here. Like they saw God and they lived to tell about it. They saw God and he didn't lay his hand on them. Now why? Why are they able to come into the presence of God? Because just a few verses earlier, God said, hey, don't get too close. Because if you get too close, you're going to end up vaporized. Don't get any closer. And now, now what do they do? They come into the presence of God. And they see God. And they have a picnic with God. How is that possible? These are the same men in the same time and the same place. There is one thing that has changed. The one thing that enables them to come into the presence of God and not be obliterated is the fact that they have been sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. They have been sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. We read that 3,500 years later, and that sounds strange at best. 
That sounds primitive. That sounds barbaric. Like Moses is literally taking blood and he is throwing it at people. So what in the world is going on? Well, if you understand the the background of covenants in the ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, when you made a covenant, you would seal it with something. So today, you might make a contract, you sign your signature on a contract, as we said earlier, in a wedding, you might exchange rings. But in the ancient Near East, they would seal a covenant by killing animals. And what they would do is they would drain the blood. And And it's metaphorically, what they were saying is this, if I go back on my word, let this happen to me. Let me be killed. Let my blood be poured out. Like literally, I swear on my life that I will keep my word. And if I don't follow through, then I deserve to be killed. It's fascinating if you read this. Where does Moses sprinkle the blood first? He sprinkles the blood on the altar first. Because the altar symbolizes the presence of God. Moses sprinkles the blood on the altar because it is God who takes the initiative. The king gives himself to his people. Before the people ever promise to be faithful to God, God promises to be faithful to his people. That's what makes this good news. That's what makes this gospel. That's what sets this apart from religion as usual. Because what does religion say? Religion says, I obey so that God will love me. The gospel says, I obey because God loves me. God takes the initiative. God loves us long before we ever love him. God commits to us long before we ever commit to him. So Moses sprinkles the altar, and then Moses sprinkles the people with the blood. And what he is showing them is this. He is saying, God has accepted you. God has chosen you. God has forgiven you. God has set you apart for himself. God has bound himself to you with his own blood. And then God invites the people into his presence. Look at verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. They go into the presence of God. Now, if I'm at the bottom of the mountain and these guys come down, the very first question out of my mouth is this. You saw God. What does God look like? And they're like, I'm not really sure, but the pavement was amazing. Like, they, they see God. They see God, and all they can talk about is the ground under God's feet. Why? Why? Because this is what you see all over the Bible when people encounter God. They encounter a holy God, and the next thing they see is the floor because they fall on their faces in worship. God is so holy and so awesome and so beautiful and so glorious that even the pavement on which he stands is too breathtaking to describe. Calls us to him and we fall down and worship. Friends, do you want to know what true worship is? True worship is coming into the presence of God and being absolutely undone by the reality that the ground under the feet of the Most High is a loftier place than we deserve. And yet, and yet he welcomes us into his presence by his grace. That should blow our minds. They come into the presence of God. 
They worship God. And then, then they eat the sacrifice. They celebrate the covenant. They are in God's presence, eating with God. So this is like the wedding reception. God says, I give myself to you. And the people say, we give ourselves to you till death do us part. They've sealed it with blood. And they say, if I go back on my word, let me be put to death. We're really committed to you, God. We'll do everything you say, God. And they all live happily ever after. <laughs> but you know that's not the way it works, right? Because within a matter of days, they've broken the covenant. They said, God, we'll do everything you say forever, and they barely make it a few days. Because when you get to the end of this chapter, chapter 24, Moses goes back up on the mountain, and he's up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And while he's up on the mountain, the people turn away from God. And they make a golden calf, and they bow down to it, and they worship it. And it basically goes on that way for the next 1,500 years. God turns, God's people turn their backs on him. God pursues his people. The people turn back to him. God says, okay, I'll take you back. He forgives them. He is committed to his people. The people turn their backs on him again, over and over and over again. Does that sound familiar? Anybody ever been there? Anybody there right now if we're honest with ourselves? God, I swear I'm done with that. I swear I'll never do it again. I really mean it this time. And we really do mean it until the next time. I'm just like them. And remember what they've said to the Lord. They have said, let us be put to death if we go back on our word. Like they have said, we deserve death for breaking the covenant. You and I in this room, we have broken our relationship with God. We have turned our backs on the God who loves us. That's what we deserve. We deserve his judgment and his death and his condemnation. But one day a man comes along. He calls himself the true vine, which is another way of saying I'm the true Israel. And he fulfills the Torah. He perfectly keeps the law. He shows us what it means to be truly and fully human. He shows us what God is like. He brings the presence of God to us because he is, in fact, God with us. He's the one man who ever lived who didn't deserve to die. And yet he takes on himself the sins of the world and he dies in our place. God himself provides the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant is the blood of God. We have broken the covenant. We have broken that relationship with God. We have broken God's law. We have broken God's heart in the process. But God will not give up on us, people. Do you realize that today? God will not give up on his people. If you are in Christ, he will not give up on you. He is infinitely more committed to you than you are to him. Regardless of where you've been, regardless of not just where you were last year, regardless of where you were last night, regardless of where you were this morning, regardless of where you feel stuck, regardless of, of that thing that you keep trying to beat and you just can't beat it, regardless of that thing that is, that is that deep, dark secret that you hold in the corner of your mind that you try to hide from everyone, including yourself, God knows about it. And when Jesus went to the cross, he took that sin with him. And he nailed it to the cross, and he paid for it, and he rose again. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.
He liberates us from that. The book of Hebrews says he sprinkles us with his blood. He brings us into the very presence of God. So today, you don't have to hide from him. You don't have to run from him. You don't have to play the religious games. You don't have to try to clean yourself up and prove yourself to him. You don't have to atone for your sins. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has done it, and it is finished. It is finished. So with that reality, today we're going to end by doing the same thing they did 3,500 years ago in Exodus 24. We are going to eat and drink in the presence of God. Book of Matthew tells us that on the night before Jesus went to the cross, he and his disciples were eating together. And, 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 and Jesus takes some wine and he pours it out. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant. He's reenacting Exodus 24. They're looking at God. They're eating and drinking with God. And God takes wine and he pours it out. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You have broken my covenant. And your sin demands your blood. But I give my blood for your forgiveness. Jesus poured out his blood so that you and I could come and eat and drink in the presence of God. The blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of our sins is the very blood of God. And so if you're trusting in that today, not if you're a perfect person, not if you're someone who can look and, and tally up all the ways. Look at all the ways I won this week, God. Look at all the ways I did it this week. No, if you are trusting in the fact that Jesus has died and was buried and rose for you, then come and eat and drink and celebrate in the presence of God. We'll have stations around the room. I believe gluten-free uh, is in the back. And we, we would invite you to simply come down the aisle, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup and take it and return to your seats and be reminded the body of Jesus was broken for you. The blood of Jesus was shed for you. If, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're, if you're just exploring these things, we're thankful that you're here. And, and we would just encourage you just to remain seated while others come to take the bread and the cup. That is not because we think we are in any way, shape, or form morally superior to you. But it's simply because that's what this meal is. It, it's a meal for those who are trusting in the blood of Jesus, who are trusting in the blood of the covenant, who are trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection. And so if you've got questions about that, I would love to speak with you. I'm sure we've got leaders all over this room who would love to speak with you about that. So let's pray, and we'll take the Lord's Supper. Father, your word is good your law is good, your rules are good, and yet so often we don't want to live under the good and loving rule of our king. We want to be our own gods, we want to do things our own way. Father, you, you have put your spirit within us, and yet so often we don't live with an awareness of your presence with us. We forget about you. We live as if we're our own gods. Father, the blood of Jesus is our only hope, and yet so often we put our hope in other things. But I thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you keep pursuing us. Thank you. You are infinitely more committed to us than we are to you. And you keep coming after us. 
and you refuse to let us go. And you love us with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us. Thank you for the body of Jesus that was broken for us. Remind us that that is our only hope and let that hope hope bolster us as we seek to follow you throughout this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.